We're here multiple times today, so I guess I'll start it off. Good morning. Hope everyone's doing well. Glad to have everybody with us this morning. We're continuing with the series on the foundations of our faith. We're going to go through this uh, lesson probably a couple of weeks here at least on baptism. We're going to discuss that. And then maybe a uh, few more weeks on something here or there depending on the, the topics. But at that point, we're considering maybe taking a break from this text and then doing a quarter on something different and then coming back to this afterwards and picking up and trying to complete it. Um, We understand we've been on this for quite a while. It's the same type of topics and it's the same teachers, unfortunately. Uh, So take a little break, uh, give some different speakers, give some different subjects, and then come back and wrap this up afterwards. This morning, we're looking at baptism and the concept of immersion. There are various texts that go along with this lesson. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Mark 16, 15 and 16, John 3, 3 through 7, Romans 6, 3 through 6. And various other ones that I picked out as I went along preparing the lesson, but those will be the main ones. So when we look at this, any discussion about the salvation of man must include what the scriptures say about baptism. And also what baptism means. Although many in the religious world view baptism as including sprinkling, pouring, and immersion, the meaning of the original term is not that broad when we look at the scriptures. We go back, look at the history We are familiar with the term baptism. We read baptism every time we pick up the Bible. We discuss this topic. But where did we get this term? Where did it come from? When we look, and the text is too small, but when we look at Charles' Concordance, from a derivative of bapto, to immerse, to submerge, to make whelmed or fully wet, used only in ceremonial cleansing, especially in ordinance of Christian baptism. So the original word in the original language meant specifically to submerge, to immerse. The word that we see today as baptism is a word that was created along the way during translations. As you know, as I know, men aren't perfect. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. That's the way we were made. That's the way we were created. At the time of the English translation in the the King James Version of the Bible, there were two major denominations that existed in England. I'm not going to call names, and I'm not going to refer to those specifically, but the king at that time was not a member of either one of those. He was a member of a third denomination. His instructions to the scholars who were also members of this third group were to translate the scriptures, but to do so in a way that did not help either of the other two groups. One group believed in immersion, and the other group believed in sprinkling. At the same time, they're also instructed not to prefer or to mistranslate any verse. So, they have a quandary now. They have to make sure they're accurate, 
but they have to make sure the translation that they do does not help either of those two groups. Everything went well until they came to the ordinance of baptism. The word clearly meant to dip or to immerse. If they translated the word strictly, then clearly it would help one of those denominations. The solution they chose was to make a new English word, baptism, which we're familiar with now. But the scholars had another problem. When it came to the word baptizo and other passages, which did not refer specifically to baptism, what were they to do? When we look at Luke chapter 16, verse 24, it says, Then he cried and said, Father, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. The word dip in that verse is the same word, bapto. When we look at John 13 and 26, Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it, and having dipped the bread he gave to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Also a problem. The word used dip here, when Christ dipped the bread, is the word bapto. The same one we use for baptism. Where the root came from. So their solution was to translate the word baptized correctly every time, except when it came to ordinance of baptism. And when it came to baptism, they created a new word, which we know today as the word baptism. If they left the word baptism, the one they created, then the translation would be allowed to have a broader meaning. Baptism was a new word. It didn't exist before the translation. Therefore, baptism could mean anything they wanted it to mean. Immersion, pouring, sprinkling, didn't matter. When you create a new word, you get to define the new word, right? However, in doing so, they veered from what the scriptures said. The scriptures were very specific. Scriptures used the word bapto, to immerse, to submerge. So this is how we came up with the word that we see today as baptism. Paul describes it as burial. When we look at Colossians 2 and 12, buried with him, which is Christ, in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Paul is very specific. He tells us that it was a burial. Now, the only way that we know to conduct a burial is to completely cover something, is it not? And when we read this verse, it leads into a little other things that we've talked about before. The idea of many in the denominational world refer to baptism as a work. They say baptism is not essential because it is a work of man. And we are not justified by our works. However, again, this verse is very specific. This verse says, Raised with him through faith in the working of God. Baptism is not a work of man. Baptism is a work of God. We do not do anything. We have no power whatsoever 
in the remission of our sins. That's one problem I have with people who clap during baptisms. If I'm baptized, there's nothing to applaud me for, for I have done nothing. The working is of God through Christ and the Holy Spirit. If anyone deserves praise, it is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is not the person who is the subject of baptism. When I'm baptized, I have accomplished nothing myself. But God has accomplished a lot. Also, when we look in Romans 6 and verse 4, it says, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. Discussing baptism, relating it again to the idea of a burial. To be covered, to be whelmed. If I'm baptized in water and I am immersed, then as the verse says here, Christ, as an example to me, I am raised from the water, just as Christ was raised from the grave. If someone pours water over me, I'm not raised from the water. If someone sprinkles water over me, I am not raised from the water. The only way I can fulfill this is through immersion. Examples of baptism in the scriptures are depicted in locations with much water, as we see in John 3 and 23 and Acts 8. 38 and 39. There are numerous examples of baptisms involving immersion into water, going down into the water, but there is not a single example of baptism in the scriptures anywhere of sprinkling or pouring. If the Bible is to be our guide, then we must follow the biblical example. And the only examples that we have of baptism are of immersion. So now we pass method. Let's look at the idea of candidate. Who should be baptized? Because of confusion in the religious world, we must consider who can be baptized. Is it appropriate to baptize infants or children? When we look at Acts 22 and 16, the scripture shows us, And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. This was spoken to Saul. And in directions to Saul was to be baptized for what purpose? To wash away his sins. So we understand from the scriptures that baptism is intended for those who are guilty of sin. We look back into Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20. The son shall not bear the guilt of his father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself. And the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So as this scripture instructs, children do not inherit sin of their parents. It's very specific. We shall not bear the guilt of our father. You cannot be responsible for someone else's sin. 
Is someone in your family, a father, a grandfather, great-grandfather, someone who did something against what the Bible teaches or had a thought against what the Bible teaches? You don't know about it. How can you be held responsible for that sin? How can you confess and repent of that sin that you know nothing about? You're responsible for your sins. I am responsible for my sins. The Bible teaches that the proper candidates are accountable individuals who express their belief in God and in Christ. We see that in Mark 16, 16, Acts 8, 12, and Acts 18, 8. We must be accountable. We must be the one who commits the sin, and then we're held responsible for that sin. And at that point, we need to repent from that sin. And if we have not been in the past, we will need to be baptized for forgiveness of that sin. Okay. Is it necessary? Does the Bible show that baptism is necessary? To do so would require showing a link between baptism and the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Christ redeems us and provides us forgiveness from our sins. We must contact his blood in order to be saved. We see in Ephesians 1 and verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Through the blood of Christ we receive the forgiveness of our sins. We look a little further into Matthew 26 and 28. Scripture teaches us that Jesus' blood was shed for the remission of our sins. For this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Is there to wash away our sins? Revelation 1.5 And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. In baptism is a way to cleanse our conscience. When we look at Hebrews 9 and 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without a spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So the challenge then is, as he mentioned earlier, requires showing a link between baptism and the blood of Jesus Christ. How do we do that? Any thoughts? How do we link baptism to the blood of Jesus Christ, which we know from Scripture gives us remission of our sins? Well, we read some Scriptures already. If we go back and look at some of those. Let's go back now and let's look at Matthew 26 and 28. Well, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. And then we look at a verse that we're common, we, can, we know commonly, Acts 2 and 38. It says... Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So now it appears we have a link. The blood of Jesus Christ in Matthew tells us it is for the forgiveness of our sins. 
And then baptism in Acts 2.38 tells us that baptism is for the forgiveness of our sins. So now we have a link. If one does a thing and a second one does the same thing, then we have a link between the two, right? We look a little further. We go back into the original language. We can see here the verse for 20, uh, Matthew 26 and 28 and also the verse for Acts 2 and 38. So let's see. Okay, that's what I want. When we look at the original language, we see right here the original words in the center of the spotlight. It means for forgiveness of sins from the original language. When we look at Acts of 2.38, what do we notice? The same words from the original language. So since these words are identical in their original language, the blood of Jesus Christ is for the forgiveness of our sins. And then baptism is also for the forgiveness of our sins. If we truly believe that the scriptures are the inspired word of God, then we have to believe what Christ said and also what the apostles and the writers of the New Testament wrote. Christ said that he would send the Holy Spirit unto them for the remembrance of all things. They were to record those things for future generations, which they did. So if we believe the scriptures are truly inspired in God, we believe the words that were written were written intentionally. And if they were written intentionally, these two phrases are exactly the same. So, based upon that, if we claim that baptism is not for the forgiveness of sins, we have to also claim that Jesus' blood was not for the forgiveness of sins. And I don't know anyone who claims to be a Christian who would want to claim that. So we have a link now that links baptism to the blood of Christ for the purpose of the forgiveness of our sins. From this we conclude that we contact the blood of Christ in baptism. This is what provides us this remission of our sins. But there are those who claim this is not true. <clears throat> there are many in the religious world today who claim that salvation is not by baptism. That baptism is not necessary. There are many who claim that baptism is simply an outward sign of an inward faith. But let's examine that argument for a couple of minutes. So let's consider the following. Why do we desire salvation? Hmm, easy question. What? Right. Salvation, right? Forgiveness of sins. To be in heaven 
with God and the Son and the Holy Spirit. These are all reasons. We can sum this up in one phrase that says, the Bible tells us, a good conscience toward God. Right? So we desire salvation. We desire that good conscience toward God. How do we get that good conscience? By forgiveness of our sins. We no longer feel guilty once we have no sin. And the only way we can have no sin is through the blood of Jesus Christ. So we desire salvation. Okay, now we know we all desire salvation. Does the world's opinion have any influence on whether we are saved or not? Got one answer, no. Anybody agree? Nobody agrees? Okay. Anyone disagree? I hope not. Okay, so the world opinion does not have any influence on our. Our salvation is not dependent upon what the world thinks. Our salvation is dependent only upon our obedience to God's word, right? When we look at Matthew seven twenty one, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Okay. Now we've established that we want to have salvation. We've established that salvation is not determined by the world or what the world thinks. So next question, or next statement, I guess. If baptism is an outward sign, it must be a sign to the world, right? Because God already knows our hearts. When we look at 1 Kings 8 and 39, it says, Then here in heaven you dwell in your dwelling place, and forgive and act, and give to everyone according to his ways, whose heart you know. For you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. So God knows our heart. If we desire salvation, God knows it. If we're obedient to his word, God knows it. Excuse me. So if there's an outward sign, right? It has to be to man. God does not need an outward sign of what we believe. He already knows whether our hearts are pure. He knows whether we truly desire to follow His Word. He knows whether we truly love His Son. So God does not require any type of an outward sign. So if there's any sign, it is to each other and not to God. Yes. But under the new, it's the circumcision of the heart. It's a spiritual thing, and it's not for show. And what did Christ say about signs? The foolish look for a sign, right? Okay. If baptism is a sign of the world, and the world cannot influence our salvation, then our baptism would be vain. Baptism would be worthless. Why would God need or command an outward sign? As shown, such a sign would, not, sign would not be for God, but for other people, as we mentioned. Our salvation is independent of what others think. Why would Christ issue a command that is unnecessary? Christ told us to go into all the world 
and to baptize. Why would Christ give us a command to follow that would be vain and worthless? So we can see from this logic, baptism cannot be biblically an outward sign of an inward faith. It is unnecessary. And such a sign would be worthless. Look a little further about the command of baptism. Jesus reminded his apostles of his authority and charged them to carry his teachings to the world. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always unto the end of the age. So baptism is a command directly from Christ. We just discussed the fact that Christ would not have us commanded to do a vain and worthless act. To argue that Jesus did not command baptism in his great commission is to ignore the truth of the scriptures. We cannot reject the command of the one who has all authority and still expect to be pleasing to him. We look at Romans 8 and verse 9, but if you're not in the flesh but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, now if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. Since baptism is authorized by Christ, how can it be optional? How can so many in the religious world who claim to be Christian claim that baptism is optional when it is a direct command from Christ? But yet we have teachers that do that in the world. Through baptism we entered into Christ, Romans 6, 3 and 4, and his church, 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. And we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2 and 38. In Mark's account, in Mark 16, 15 and 16, we see the vital nature of baptism. Although belief is essential and the basis of the plan of salvation, it alone is not enough. One must believe and be baptized. When we talk about baptism being essential for salvation, we're not trying to belittle the idea of faith. A lot of times people misunderstand that. Faith is the core. Without faith, we would not repent. Without faith, we would not confess. And without faith, we would not be baptized. Faith is where all this starts. Without faith, we would do none of these things. It also represents a new birth and a new creation. Scripture not only commands baptism, but also describes it in ways that help us better understand its purpose. We talked before about the conversation between Christ and Nicodemus. And Jesus told Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3 and 3. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. There's only one way I know of to be born again. Through baptism. So what the scripture is truly telling us here is that if you are not baptized, 
You cannot see the kingdom of God. A lot of times we, we kind of drift over this verse. And we don't stop to realize and talk about it and understand what it's telling us. But when we look at the deeper meaning of the verse, we really see these things. As we talked about before, people are going to bring John 3.16 out to you. And they're going to talk about the fact that we're saved by faith because Christ died for us. But when they do, ask them to sit down with you and read the entire chapter. Not just this one verse. When we read the entire chapter, we see that the beginning of the chapter is talking about a discussion between Nicodemus and Christ on baptism. And then when we look below verse 16, we see there's another discussion going on, again, about baptism. We talk about being able to interpret verses in their context. What does it mean and how it's written? We have to look at the surrounding verse to, to see what's going on. Who is, it being talk, who is being talked to? What is being talked about? Does it apply in that time frame? Does it apply in this time frame? But yet people want to go in and pull an entire chapter that discusses baptism and pull one verse out and say, no, it's not required. But the whole chapter is about baptism. <clears throat> Nicodemus didn't understand Jesus and explained, and explained his statement by adding that we must be born of water and of spirit. Okay, as we just discussed. Unless we're born again, we can't see the kingdom of heaven. Christ says we must be born of water and of spirit. Okay, so now we know what kind of birth that has to be. The birth Jesus is speaking of was spiritual in nature. This new birth occurs when one is baptized. We see that 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 again in Acts 2 and 38. Another helpful description is found in Paul's letter to the Romans. He pictures baptism as mirroring the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. In Romans 6 verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Okay, so how do we touch the death of Christ? Through baptism. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. How were we buried with Christ? Through baptism. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. We too might walk in newness of life. Just as Christ was raised from death. We are raised from that spiritual death that we have been in because of sin. When we come up out of the waters of baptism. As our Savior died for our sins, so we too must die to our sin. Paul describes the process in Galatians. In chapter 2 and verse 20 it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So we look again at this verse. Paul talks about dying to sin. In other words, we have to develop that concept of mind that we no longer desire sin. When we talk about repenting of sin, it means we've left that sin behind. We've turned away. And we're going to do our best, although sometimes we may not succeed. But we're going to do our best not to commit that sin again. 
Everybody has weaknesses. We've talked about the fact that no one is perfect. What is tempting to you may not be tempting to someone else. But we all have weaknesses. We all have temptations. By repenting, what we're doing is we're saying we're going to do our best not to fall in those traps. Will we be successful 100% of the time? No, we won't. But Christ tells us that He still has forgiveness for us if we're trying, if we're doing our best. Okay, and then going a little further. When one is baptized, the old man dies and the new man is raised from the grave. Those who unite with Christ in baptism become a new creature. 2 Corinthians 5 and 17 tells us, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We become that new creature. We become that creature who is not practicing those sinful acts. We do our best to stay away from those things. We stay away from the people who will not understand and will not convert to Christ and will not work in that area because many of those times they're temptations to us. We stay away from those places that are subject to sin. There should be no joy for a Christian going to something, a place, a event that you know is going to be full of sin. We have to work to stay away from those because each time we go to things like that, that is a temptation. So we try to stay away from those. We try to live a life that's more pure. And it's about time to close here. So the subject of baptism is an important one because it pertains to man's eternal salvation. We must acknowledge that Christ commanded his followers to baptize. That baptism requires us to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of our sins. And I think we've proved both of those points in this lesson. It's obvious of the commandment of Christ to baptize. Those are words directly from him. And I think it's obvious from what we've studied this morning that there's a tie between that blood of Christ that was sacrificed for our sins and baptism. As we showed before, if one is essential for the forgiveness of our sins, both are. You can't take one and not take the other. Because to do so would be a violation of what the scriptures have. And I will go ahead and close at that point unless there are questions. All right, I thank you very much for your kind attention. And we will dismiss at this point. Thank you.